0: Hello and welcome back to The Economic Review. There's no question that unions were essential to building the economy that we benefit from today. From their inception during the European Industrial Revolution, labor unions have ensured workers' protections, living wages, and safe working conditions. Unions support the very backbone of American democracy. People have a right to organize. Workers should, without question, be allowed to band together to bargain for their best interests collectively. The problem that so many naysayers attribute to unions are not because of the union's existence, but rather because of their relationship with the government. In the early 1800s, many American states viewed unions as illegal organizations, conspiring to disrupt commerce or harm employers. State legislators often cited union membership as unlawful and strikes or threats were not allowed. By the Great Depression era, the U.S. government swang far in the opposite direction, actively encouraging labor unions. Employers were forced to recognize unions and engage in mandatory collective bargaining. Unions were recognized by law as exclusive bargaining representatives, disallowing individual workers from negotiating with employers in many cases. The United States government cemented this relationship with labor unions in the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, the Labor Management Relationship Act of 1947, did a bit to undo these harsh terms such as outlawing closed shops and allowing individual states to outlaw union shops and their agency shops unions are an enduring part of the workers rights movement today more than a third of public sector of the public sector work- workforce is represented by unions according to social philosophy scholar ernest van de heck unions gives workers a feeling so often lacking in our life of participation of solidarity with fellow employees and of community This feeling is not generated by simply working with others. It is created when unions succeed in providing these fringe benefits, tied to the job and common leisure activities for their members. The debate here is not whether unions can be successful. Rather, should they enjoy government protections when so many fail to provide these promised benefits to their members? 27 states have decided that they should not, as evidenced by their operation as right-to-work states, Prohibiting Union Security Agreements Between Employers and Labor Unions In 2018, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a ruling that government employee unions cannot require represented workers to pay union dues, or fees. The landmark case Janus v. AFSCME determined that union fees in the public sector violate the First Amendment right to free speech, overturning the 1977 decision in Abood v. Detroit Board of Education. Plaintiff Mark Janice, a public sector employee in Illinois, challenged a state statute that required public sector employees to pay agency fees. Agency fees, meant to cover the costs of collective bargaining for all employers, were mandatory despite non-union members having no say in the representation they were forced to pay for. Janice highlighted and summarized how labor unions receiving federal protections is a blight on our economy. Janice brought to light... The most significant failure of labor unions that shelter under government protections. They have no intentions or requirements to work for the best interests of all those whom they represent. Government-protected monopolies of unions pigeonhole workers into one representative body. Workers cannot advocate and bargain for themselves directly with employers, nor form another partnership that better aligns with their needs. Van de Haag points out, Unions do not always benefit members. Some workers feel that they are better off on their own. Others represent specific union practices or policies, or the cost of membership. Wherefore, quite a number of workers resist unionization. They are often pressured and sometimes legally compelled to join unions if they want to keep their jobs. The reason for the intense pressure and government support of unions is simple. The almighty dollar. A brief submitted by the Competitive Enterprise Institute in the Janus case revealed staggering information about labor union political spending. According to the report... The American Federation of State County Municipal Employees spent agency fees to advocate for various political and religious issues. AS, AFSCME is undoubtedly not alone in its spending. The Center for Union Facts Review of Annual Financial Disclosure Reports for 2010 to 2017 unveiled that labor union political spending amounted to about $1.3 billion. These billions went to funding political activities, activist groups, media organizations, and nonprofits. The Wall Street Journal reported that in 2012, the political spending by labor unions jumped significantly in the month before federal elections in 2006, 2008, and 2010. The National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers are consistently among the organizations that contribute the most money to candidates and political groups. The NEA was the most significant public sector union contributor in 2020, shelling out nearly $48 million in total of which over $3 million went directly to political candidates or parties. Renowned political writer Dan Waters said of California union spending, Labor's ever-increasing political influence from the smallest school district to the legislature and statewide offenses, including the governorship, is an uncontested fact. This type of spending might be more palatable if all union members were aligned with a specific political candidate or issue and their money was going to causes that directly represented their beliefs and needs but given that that's largely not the case political spending by unions regardless of which for, of for which side detracts from unions primary purpose and ceases to be representative of all of their members best interests overspending on unrepresentative politics isn't the only issue with providing government p- protections to unions many unions are rampant with overspending in other areas too in 2016 the un- the service employees international union Spent funds on activities such as $400,000 on staff meetings and training at D.C.'s luxurious St. Regis Hotel, $33,000 for a single night of catering, $10,000 to a Capitol Hill bar, and high six-figure salaries to union presidents and administrators. In these cases, it is paramount that workers have the ability to walk away from unions they feel are wasteful and instead create or join another to better serve their interests. Catering, bar tabs, and expensive event spaces do little to improve the average worker's life, and if they feel as though a union is no longer beneficial to them, they should not be required to stay in them. Union expert Walter Urichwa says the union voice is often out of sync with the voice of members. The way the union spends money serves as an effective silencer. There are union members from coast to coast fighting their own unions to stop the extravagant spending and the spending of union dues and agency fees on political activities and other issues not related to the collective bargaining process. Supporters of unions will likely cite the excellent work unions have done in the past, and I'm not here to debate their historical influence. But but unions under the shelter of government can simply no longer be as effective as they once were. There have undoubtedly been significant improvements in working conditions facilitated by unions. OSHA ensures workplace safety. We long ago won the right to a five-day work week. Overtime is generally properly compensated. However, many of the victories that unions do achieve end up having adverse impacts on certain union members, who often have little to no recourse. Take, for example, a union winning higher wages through striking and bargaining. Vanderhag points out, when unions benefit their members by obtaining higher wages, the money cannot come out of the profits of employers, although members are encouraged to believe that it does. The money for raises comes from a higher productivity, which places more stress on workers; higher prices for whatever the workers are producing, which results in fewer sales, leading to lower employment. Either way, union members get higher wages not only at the expense of workers who do not get or do not get to keep jobs because of lower sales and less production. These workers remain unemployed or have to go into lower-paying, non-unionized jobs. Many union workers who are not happy with their wages to begin with can end up losing their jobs. Government protections for such unions end up leaving them with no checks or oversight, and no one can challenge the efficacy of their actions. Unions likely could have continued on a trajectory that represented willing members' interests should the government protections have ceased to be implemented. John Hoare was saying it as early as 1991. U.S. unions must reinvent themselves, much as some companies are trying to do. The U.S. industrial relations system cannot be reinvigorated unless unions carve out a new role for themselves. They must develop a vision of how workers should shape technological and social revolution that is transforming the workplace. They must identify new leverage points for union influence. Finally, they must improve their own human resources to help put labor's new vision into practice. Unfortunately, because of the chokehold, unions have been unable to adapt. Regulation and intervention in what should be a free market venture have prevented unions from functioning the way any enterprise should responding to its conscious demands. Instead, unions are bogged down by collective bargaining that rarely results in meaningful change for the workers. John T. Addison points out in his paper, The Consequence of Trade Power Erosion, that in examining worker satisfaction with independent and internal voice options, where the former includes unions, occupational associations, and joining strike action, the latter encompass conversations with the supervisor, filling a grievance... At the workplace and joining an employee manager committee. The new survey also reveals that no one size shoe fits all workers. That is, some workers are more likely to favor internal options than unions or to regard each option as superior for some issues but not others. Charles W. Baird makes a case for free market union law by pointing out that a free market is one in which interactions between people take place in the context of voluntary exchange. The principal role for government in a free market is to enforce the rules of voluntary exchange in any market, including the labor market. Baird argues that the National Labor Relations Act violates the rules of voluntary exchange by imposing exclusive representation on employees and employers, which is little more than monopoly bargaining. He also posits that mandatory good-faith bargaining flies in the face of contract law. Parties cannot be forced to bargain. In this case, I must agree with Baird. In the matter of unions, our government's involvement creates a blockade to free voluntary market exchange. Unions are a fair and reasonable part of our free market. They've historically provided significant benefits to workers, and perhaps they will again. But unless we reevaluate the grasp our government has on unions, they will continue to devolve into bloated, unchecked machines, detracting from their original purpose of assisting willing members in collective bargaining. As of present, many workers who forcibly part with a piece of their paycheck to feed a union, do not have that they, they do not wish to be a part of, have little recourse. Of course, workers who choose to leave their unions willingly opt out of any potential benefits that membership offers. The point is that they should have the choice to make that decision for themselves. Thank you so much for listening to The Economic Review. We'll be back soon with the latest.